Good morning. Welcome, welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. Well, as we continue our Look Closer sermon series, we come upon one of Jesus's most controversial parables in any of the four Gospels, and that is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, you may be thinking, or I was thinking this week as I was preparing this sermon, that last week was already hard enough. It took some real work for us to reach a sound conclusion from the parable of the dishonest manager. We saw there that Jesus was not commending dishonesty or unrighteousness. He was teaching his disciples to shrewdly use our worldly resources for heavenly purposes. Jesus is calling us to steward our wealth now in preparation for eternal life, rather than worship it now and miss out on eternal life. And today's parable picks up that same theme. But it also serves as a cautionary tale of what happens when we ignore Jesus' warning. So, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you that you bring us together in one spirit, under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. Thank you that we can come from different backgrounds, different places, different experiences, different baggage, and different sins. And we can come to you and be forgiven. We can come to you and have peace with God and peace with one another. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for our reconciliation by your body, by your blood on the cross, sealed and affirmed and announced most drastically, most obviously, most gloriously in your resurrection. Be with us as we read your word this morning, especially these portions of Luke that cause us to think that can challenge our presuppositions, I pray that we would be open to what your word has to say to us. That includes me. That includes everyone in this room. Help us hear what you have to say today. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the generosity that you show to us in the gospel. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we begin the parable itself, a few brief words about Luke 16, verses 14 through 18. And I say this because these verses serve as a bridge of sorts between last week's passage and this week's passage. So, very quickly, in verse 14, we see that the Pharisees are hearing Jesus' words. We saw that they were among his primary audience back in chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And then last week, halfway through chapter 16, we saw the attention shift more towards the disciples. And then here, the Pharisees are back in view in verse 14. 
But we also learn something important about the Pharisees in this verse. Jesus calls them lovers of money. Lovers of money. He says that in verse 14, right after what he said in verse 13. If you remember, Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 14 tells us where the Pharisees fall on that issue. Both the parable from last week and the parable that we read this morning apply especially to the Pharisees, especially to the religious leaders, but they apply to the disciples. They apply to us as well. We then see in verse 15 that God knows the Pharisees' hearts. These people who professed a deep love for God and to some degree probably meant it were also blind. They were hard hearted. And the ultimate proof of their hard heartedness is their persistent rejection of Jesus. As we saw in chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the Pharisees have older brother syndrome. They are out of step with God and they don't even fully realize it. And then finally, look briefly at Jesus's words about the law of Moses in verses 16 and 17. Now, it's true that Jesus's life, death and resurrection, those things change sinners relationship with the Old Testament law. Not every prescription from Mount Sinai is equally applicable or authoritative to Christians now in the way it was to Jews back then. And the law does not establish or confirm our good standing with God. Jesus does that. But with all that said, at the bare minimum, verses 16 and 17 show us that Jesus is no squish when it comes to God's holy expectations of his holy people. Being saved by grace through faith does not give us license to sin. We see that in Jesus's words about marriage in verse 18. And we see that in our parable beginning in verse 19. So beginning there, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, 
Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, let's look closer at our two main characters. First, we have the rich man. And of all the rich people we see in the Bible, he might be, and I am not exaggerating, The richest. Jesus' description of this man, from his over-the-top attire, to his daily feasting, to his gated community, it all intentionally stresses just how filthy, stinking, absurdly, shockingly, and obnoxiously wealthy this man really is. But... For all his worldly means. You know what we don't learn about this man? We do not learn his name. Then we meet the poor man. And of all the poor people we see in the Bible, he might be, and again, I'm not exaggerating, the poorest. Jesus' description of this man, from his physical ailments to his lack of basic necessities for survival to the canine company he keeps, it all intentionally stresses just how filthy, stinking, absurdly, shockingly, and obnoxiously destitute this man is. But... For all his worldly need. You know what we do learn about this man? His name. In fact, of all people, Lazarus is the only figure in any of Jesus' parables who gets a name. Now, that massive physical, economic, and social gap between these two characters highlights the utter depravity of the rich man. But for all the distance between these two men in terms of their resources, there wasn't much physical distance between them. Lazarus was laid at this rich man's gate. He was right there. The rich man even appears to have learned Lazarus' name. But he did nothing to help him. Zilch. 
nada. Both men die. Both go to Hades. Your Bible may say Sheol. That was the all-encompassing place of the dead in the Jewish imagination. But only one of them, poor old Lazarus, is comforted by Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. The other, the nameless rich man, is tormented. Now, to some degree, the rich man recognizes what he did wrong. He even asks Abraham to warn his family to not make the same mistake he made. But there are also signs that even now, the rich man is still hard-hearted. He hasn't learned his lesson. He doesn't quite get it. He's still selfish. His first concern is relieving his own suffering. On top of that, he may still look down on Lazarus as some kind of servant or errand boy at best. But maybe worst of all, the rich man and the family he left behind, they don't appear to have a high appreciation of God's word. That same word, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament Jesus mentioned in verses 16 and 17, which is really a catch-all term. God's word warned the rich man against his sin long before he died. Deuteronomy 15 verses 7 through 11 gave him specific instructions about how God's people were to care for the poor. Psalm 41 verse 1 announced that the one who considers the poor is blessed. Proverbs 22 verse 2 reminded him that the poor were created by God the same way he was. And Isaiah 58, 6 through 9, told this man, through the prophet, that the worship God desires, more than just empty ceremony, is love for the poor. This rich man could not claim ignorance. God told him what to do, but he ignored it. Same is true of his brothers. And their actions speak louder than words. Those actions prove that he was not one of God's people after all. As John the Baptist said earlier in Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, calling Abraham father was not enough. God's people must not bear mere lip service. They must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's too late for the rich man. That chasm cannot be crossed. And while he thinks that some miraculous sign, Lazarus back from the dead, might convince his brothers to repent, Abraham says that not even that would be enough. Some hearts are so hard that they will never trust and obey God. They will never see the sign standing right in front of them. That includes the Pharisees listening to this parable. The ones who will soon begin plotting Jesus' death. So, there's a lot here to unpack, isn't there? 
Well, perhaps this is a good place to start. Question one. How should we not use this parable? How should we not use this parable? Well, first, I'd suggest that we need more than just this parable to develop a sound, well-rounded biblical theology of the afterlife. Jesus is not giving us a systematic presentation of death, judgment, heaven, and hell with this parable. So while we should not ignore this passage when trying to come to biblical conclusions about what happens when we die, we should also keep in mind that that is not the main point in this passage. Second, I'd suggest that we need more than just this parable to develop a sound, well-rounded biblical theology of poverty and wealth. Jesus is not giving us a comprehensive presentation of stewardship of material resources. He's not giving us a foolproof silver bullet program to relieve the problem of poverty. In short, we should be careful not to make this parable say things it isn't saying. And conversely, we should be careful not to oversimplify what it is saying. That leads to question two. How then should we use this parable? Well, at its most basic level, here's what Jesus teaches us in Luke 16, 19 through 31. God cares for the poor, and so must his people. God cares for the poor, and so must his people. You know, ironically, given the title of this sermon series, this is one of those parables where rather than looking closer, there's something to be said for a healthy practice of taking it at face value. We sometimes get too deep into the interpretive weeds, trying to make this parable about something other than what it's most obviously about. God cares for the poor. And so must we. This isn't anything new. We already mentioned the Old Testament precedent for that teaching. The laws of Deuteronomy. The wisdom of the Psalms and Proverbs. The writings of the prophets. And countless other passages could be cited telling us that God cares for the poor. And God's people must as well. But there's also significant precedent for this teaching just in the Gospel of Luke that we've been reading. Jesus cares for the poor, and so must his disciples. In his sermon in Luke 4, Jesus announces good news to the poor. In the Sermon on the Mount of Luke 6, Jesus preaches that the poor will be blessed and satisfied in his kingdom. We saw the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, the parable of the banquet in Luke 14, which both warn us against selfish luxury and excess. And now we see this. Whether we like it or not, the gospel of Luke is full of this stuff. It's nothing new in the Old Testament. It's nothing new in the gospel of Luke. 
But there's also precedent for this teaching in the history of the church. In Acts 2, verses 44 and 45, we see the early church sacrificially providing for the poor. Historian Michael Kruger writes that Christians in the earliest centuries distinguished themselves by their commitment to help those in financial need. Christians, unlike so many in the Greco-Roman world, were willing to transcend socioeconomic boundaries to aid those with economic burdens, particularly during times of distress. Christians became known, even among their pagan enemies, for their care of the helpless. Are Christians today known for our care of the helpless? We see it in the Old Testament. We see it all over Luke. We see it in the history of the church. But we see this teaching elsewhere in the New Testament as well. In James chapter 2, verse 14, we read from the pen of Jesus' brother, no less. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, the equivalent of, hey, hope you get things figured out, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is not contradicting the Apostle Paul in these verses. James believes that we are saved by grace through faith. But James rightly emphasizes that saving faith is inevitably accompanied by good works. And what example of good works does James give? Care for the poor. Especially when that poor person is a brother or sister in Christ. The rich man of Luke 16 may have professed some level of faith. He considered himself a child of Abraham after all. But his faith was dead. He proved it every time he walked past Lazarus. As for those Pharisees, the lovers of money, their faith was dead too. May our faith not be dead. May our works, including care for the poor, display a living and obedient faith in God. So again, God cares for the poor. And so must his people. Of course, we all know that caring for the poor is complicated. Anyone who tells you they have a quick and easy solution to the problem of poverty is lying, naive, or both. Nobody has the market cornered on this. No 501c3, no political party, no individual philanthropist. No one has this perfectly figured out. That's why one theologian writes, 
Luke offers no universal strategy or sure prescription for how believers are to deal with issues of wealth and poverty. But Luke wants his readers to consider this matter every day. He stops short of providing a one-size-fits-all solution, but ensures that any reader who is not poor is confronted by a challenge that never goes away. What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself when I have more than I need and my neighbor does not have enough? Multiple responses may be partially satisfactory. But what is absolutely disastrous is to do nothing at all. We might not have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. But practically speaking, what can and should we do to care for the poor as God cares for the poor? Well, a good first step might be to simply increase our awareness of the poor. The rich man's first sin was that he simply chose not to see Lazarus. And how often do we choose to not see the poor around us? Several years ago, on a Sunday morning, I went running in downtown Fishers. It was 545. It was pitch black. There's nobody out at that time of morning. And as I'm running down 116th, I was completely shocked and startled to come upon a bench with a man sleeping on it. I didn't see him at first. It absolutely scared me to death. And I just kept running. Again, it was dark. It was very early. I was very much in the zone at that moment. But even though I have excuses for why I didn't see that man right then and there, would I have done anything different if I passed him during the light of day? If I had seen him from a hundred feet away, would I have stopped and done something? Or would I have just kept running? Would I have acted like he wasn't there? That's probably what I would have done. When we're on the street and we see the poor, we're tempted to not even make eye contact. We move to places where we hope to not see the poor at all. We often refuse to grant poor people, those made by the same God who made us, the simple dignity of acknowledging their existence. The first step of caring for the poor, as God cares for the poor, is to recognize their presence, to simply be aware of them. Second, may we increase our awareness of ourselves. Think about the justifications that we often make to avoid caring for the poor. We let our political, cultural, or ideological assumptions or biases get in the way of doing what God calls us to do. For example, we jump to the conclusion that poverty is always the result of a personal moral failing. And while that sadly is often the case... It isn't always the case. To that point, it's worth noting that Jesus does not seem concerned with Lazarus's background. He pays no attention to how Lazarus ended up on that rich man's doorstep. 
He focuses on the rich man's sin and ignoring him. Our own wealth can also leave us out of touch with the needs of others. John Calvin once wrote, For many are so devoted to luxury in all their senses that their minds lie buried. Many are so delighted with marble, gold, and pictures that they become marble-hearted. Now, will we need wisdom and prudence to properly care for the poor? Of course. There are a million factors that we must have in mind. But we must also be aware of how quickly, easily, and sinfully we can justify our lack of concern. And third, may we increase our awareness of God. Old Testament Israelites, God's people, were consistently called to care for the poor by God himself. Some of the prophets' most scathing critiques came when addressing the sins of greed, selfishness, and economic injustice. And Christians like us, God's people in Christ, are called to care for the poor too. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the Apostle Paul is attempting to convince one church to support another church financially because the Christians there were hurting. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. As Paul seeks to motivate these people to generosity, he reminds them of who God is and what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. God cares for sinners so much that he would send his son into a fallen world in order that the spiritually poor, which includes all of us, might become rich. We too must care for the poor. The poor economically, socially, and spiritually. We mentioned that Lazarus is the only character in Jesus' parables who gets a name. And that name, if you're curious, means God helps. God helps. It's hard to think that that is a coincidence. It's also hard not to connect this Lazarus to another Lazarus in the New Testament. A different Lazarus received God's help in John 11 when Jesus raised him from the dead. The ultimate form of poverty in this world. May we remember how God has helped us. How thanks to Jesus Christ, we have been raised from death to life. May our faith in the risen Christ be living and active rather than dead, static, and cold, marble-hearted. As people whom God has helped, may we help others, especially those who need it most. God cares for the poor, and so must we. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. Thank you for your word, including Luke 16, 19 through 31. Parables that are not often read, parables that are not often preached, parables that are sometimes avoided or bent or clouded because we don't really want to confront what they're clearly telling us. But Lord, I pray that we would not be hard-hearted, that we would not ignore the obvious right in front of us, not just in Luke 16, but elsewhere in your word. May we follow in the steps of the believers before us who cared for the poor. May we care for the poor as you care for the poor. May our motivation not be some naive sense in which we can fix everything, some naive desire for utopia, a world with no more problems by our own power. But may our desire to help those around us be driven by the help that you have given us in Christ. You have given us something far greater than just material relief from poverty. You have given us eternal life by your body and blood. You have given us the forgiveness of sins. You have given us reconciliation with you, even though we have no right to come into your presence. You have given us so much, Lord. So I pray that our hearts for those around us would reflect your heart for us. Help us care for the poor as you care for the poor. Give us wisdom and prudence as we seek to do that. Because as we acknowledge, there are no clear easy answers to such a complicated problem. But help us not use that as an excuse to not think about the problem. Help us not use that as an excuse to avoid the problem, throw up our hands and do nothing. Help us have a living and active faith, obedient to you in the words that you give us. We love you. We thank you. We praise you for your son and your spirit. Thank you that we can call you our Father. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.